you sound like you like each other. That's a good sign. <laughs> I'm glad to be with you today. Take your Bibles and join me in Matthew 13. Started a series last week called Kingdom Stories, and we introduced this teaching method that Christ employed the last year of his ministry called parables. Parables. Christ would not employ any other manner of public speaking aside from parables after he introduced this. And we talked about what a parable is. A parable uh, is a story, and it's a story that uses examples from everyday life, things that are familiar, to explain that which is unfamiliar, eternal truth, spiritual truths. And we said that a parable serves uh, some unique purposes. It is not merely a story to make things plain for anyone and everyone. It is to make plain truth for those who are seeking him seeking Jesus, but it is also to obscure truth from those who are rejecting Christ, who are not seeking Christ. And so we talked about what a parable is, what it's for, and then we looked at the very first parable that Jesus taught, the parable of the sower here in uh, Matthew 13, and we're going to now look at the next parable that he's going to go into in that same setting. So Matthew 13, and we're going to start eventually here in verse 24, but before we do, I'm going to tell you a story. In 1937, uh, one of the most respected and, and well-known art historians in the world was a guy named Abraham Bradius. And Abraham Bradius was approached by an attorney who claimed to represent the estate of a wealthy Dutch family. And he said that this family had long been in possession of a painting, and they they suspected that there was something very special about this painting, and so they wondered if this art historian would mind taking a look at it. Well, Bradius was intrigued at the notion, so he agreed. And this was a painting of Jesus and two of his disciples, and it was called Supper at Emmaus. And this art historian looked at this painting, and he gasped. He was stunned, and very soon he wrote an article that he quickly published in one of the prominent art magazines of the day. And in this article, he announced to the world that there had been discovered a heretofore unseen, lost work by the Dutch master, uh, Johannes Vermeer. This, this artist worked in the 1600s, and this painting had just been unearthed, and he validated it. He verified that this is a Vermeer work. I know Vermeer, he said, and this is absolutely the work of Johannes Vermeer. He said it's a wonderful moment in the life of a lover of art when he finds himself suddenly confronted with a heretofore unknown painting by a great master, untouched, he said, on the original canvas, without any restoration, just, just as it left the painter's studio. What a picture. He said, he said there's no way that this is, is painted by anyone other than Vermeer. And not only is it an authentic Vermeer, he said it perhaps, I dare say, is the masterpiece of Johannes Vermeer. In no other picture by him do we find such sentiment, such profound understanding of the Bible story. And this painting was purchased after that article by the Rembrandt Society for, for a sum that would be the equivalent of today what would be nearly $5 million. And over the next several years, there would in fact be other Vermeers that would come to light. And they would go for similar sums. And in fact, at the end of World War II, the well-known Nazi, Hermann Goering, his estate was ransacked 
by the allies, and there in, in his house, they found several uh, paintings that were priceless, uh, many, many examples of antiquity. The Nazis hoarded such things. And among all of this, in that stash, they found a painting that appeared to be by Vermeer. But there was something off about this painting. They inspected it and they, they said, how would a Nazi come about obtaining such a painting? What were the channels? Who was doing business with Nazis? And they began to investigate this and they sent the painting away to be examined. And what they found was that it was a fake And not only was that painting in the Nazi's house a fake, they determined based on where it came from that these other paintings were in fact fakes, including the painting of Jesus with his two disciples, so famously celebrated as the real deal. And they were all the work of one man, it was determined. And it was not a man from the 1600s. It was not a contemporary of Johannes Vermeer. No, it was a guy who was living and breathing at that very moment. It was a man by the name of Han von Meeren. And this guy was a relatively obscure uh, artist with very little success, regarded as as non-extraordinary, and he had studied the style of Vermeer. And he had imitated it to near perfection. He had spent hours mixing paint uh, to get exactly the kinds of colors that Vermeer had used in his masterpieces 300 years prior. But, But how did this guy manage to make these paintings look 300 years old? It was a very technical process of completing the painting and then sliding it into a pizza oven for a period of time until it looked aged. He had fooled the Nazis. He had fooled the art world. He'd fooled them all. And sometimes the people that you'd least expect to get duped, get duped. And sometimes Christians get duped. Which is why in our Bible we see scripture like 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars. In 2 Timothy 4, it says, For the time is coming, people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. And in Romans, Paul tells us, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to doctrines that you've been taught. Avoid them, he says, by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. In 2 Peter 2, he says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. In Ephesians, we just finished this book studying it together. It says, let no one deceive you with empty words. I wonder what we're going to be talking about today. And I've just scratched the surface here. There are many, many, many verses just like this. There are lines of caution like this in every single epistle in the New Testament. Why is that? Because in those days, there were errors in the church. There were destructive heresies. There were examples of false teaching that would creep in. Fortunately, we've gotten rid of all those, right? No, I think we still need to be alert. How many of you agree the devil is sneaky? 
He is sly. He finds a way in. He will corrupt whatever he can. And we have to be discerning. But of all the texts in your Bible that warn against such things, the one that we're going to look at today, I think, is the signature text on the need for us to be alert. Now, last week we looked at a parable, the parable of the sower. And what we said then is that this is a parable about the kingdom. It's a kingdom story. Now, there is a kingdom that is coming. And that kingdom is perfect. We're not in the perfect kingdom, but we are in a shadow of the kingdom that is to come. It's a glimpse of God's kingdom on the earth. It is not perfect, but it is a glimpse of that which is to come. And the parable we looked at last week, we said, was the proclamation of that coming kingdom. Well, the parable we're going to look at today is called the parable of the weeds. Now, in your Bible, you might have a different title. Uh, on, on, the, on the subtitle, the heading there, it might call it the parable of the wheat and the tares. But whatever it's called, this in your notes, this parable of the weeds, is the impersonation of the kingdom of the church age. It is a mockery. It is a fraud. It's a forgery, if you will. It's an imitator. And so here it is. I'm just going to read it in its entirety right now. In Matthew 13, starting in verse 24, it says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to a master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. And so the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, what does that all mean? We shall see. But let's have another quick word of prayer and ask God to reveal this to us. Heavenly Father, we, we just prayed a moment ago and asked your blessing upon our time of giving whenever that may fall for each one of us this week. But now we ask for your blessing upon the word, upon our understanding of it, upon our reception of it, upon our application of it. Would you grant to us that understanding today. We thank you for the authenticity that we find in your word. It is trustworthy, unlike many that we find in this life. God, you can be relied upon. And we pray this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I just read that parable to you in its entirety. Christ, after this, is going to go on. He's going to tell another parable. We're not going to get into that parable today. But we're going to focus on this one. And it will be explained. I want you to jump ahead to verse 36, it says, then he left the crowds and he went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the, the, the parable of the weeds of the field. All right, so you see what's happening. Last week we talked about the parable of the sower. After he told that parable, his disciples come to him and they're, they're seeking truth. They want to know, what's this mean? What's the deal with all of this? Well, here we have it again. And when you come and you seek after Christ, what happens? He reveals truth. 
And so that's what he's going to do. And so just like we broke down the parable of the sower last week, we're going to go back and forth. And we're going to revisit that parable that I read line by line. And then we'll show you how Christ interprets it. So just to remind you, at the top of 24, what we read, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. How does Christ explain this? In verse 37, he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Who is that? That's Jesus himself. That was his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. He's the one sowing the seed. You know, John 6 tells us, all the Father gives me, he says, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus is in the process of gathering his people. He is sowing seeds right now, and those seeds in this age are going to take root Those of us that he foreknew, he predetermined to receive grace. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he calls, he justifies. Those he justifies, he will glorify. So right now, presently, Christ in this world is sowing seeds and he's gathering his people. We know that good seed is seed that takes root. It takes root. And look at verse 38. I love this line. He says, the field is the world. The field is the world. If I, if I ran a missions organization, I'd put that phrase on the back of every shirt. I'd put it on every pamphlet. I'd put it on every poster. The field is the world. Have we even come across a great commission in this book yet? No, that's at the end of Matthew. So this is off the lips of Jesus Christ right here. Before he even gives a great commission, he lets his disciples know the field is the world. That's where the world, or where the Lord is at work, all right? It's his field, and he is sowing seeds in his field. And so the present, though it's imperfect, the present form of the kingdom on earth in your notes is going to be characterized by a few things, and I'm going to give them to you right now. Number one, it's characterized in that it is worldwide. It is worldwide. The present form of the kingdom is global, Acts 1.8, he's going to say to his disciples right before he ascends into glory, he's going to tell them, you are to be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What's the end of the earth? Burlington, North Carolina. <laughs> to the Jew would be the end of the earth, all right? It's the, it's the uttermost Parts, and this is prophetic. Christ is going to be taken. His word is going to go out. After he ascends, it's going to go into Asia. It's going to go into Europe, Russia. It's going to go down to the equator. It's going to go to Africa. It's going to go to South America, North America, Central America. It's going to go to Iran and Iraq and Saudi Arabia. It's going to go everywhere there are pagans. It's going to go to Durham. It's going to go to Chapel Hill. You with me? It's going everywhere. And in Acts 17.30, it says, The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's sowing everywhere. And not only is he sowing seeds, he's going to have results. There are people where those seeds are taking root all over the world. Verse 38 goes on. It says, And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. That's who God's people are. If you name the name of Christ, you're a born-again believer. You are a son or daughter of the kingdom. You're a child of the kingdom, okay? The field is the world. The world is made up of different nations. Now, when we talk about nations in Scripture, are we talking about Israel? Are those Jews? No, those are Gentiles. The nations are 
are all of those who are not descended from Abraham, okay? You're not a covenant people, not that same covenant anyway, and you are not of that chosen line, but this says from the words of Christ that there will be among the Gentiles children of the kingdom. There will be represented every tribe and every tongue in heaven. When you get to heaven, there'll be people from all over the world, from every nation. They're going to be represented there. Just like Noah had representatives of every type of critter on this earth, the Ark of the Cross is going to be populated by people from every tribe, every tongue. The seed's going out. Jesus is saying, this is going to happen. I'm going to plant seeds. They're going to take root, and I'm going to create life. Every seed is a self-contained unit of life, and I'm going to plant it deep, and it's going to take root, and there will be new divine DNA that's going to sprout up. I am growing a people worldwide, and in that iteration of the kingdom, that age in which we now live, in your notes, number two, there are true possessors of grace. True possessors of grace. We are sons and daughters of the kingdom. We are here right now, but we know Jesus. So what does that mean? This world is not our home. It's not our home. We live here. We work here. Our sojourn is here. Our citizenship is in heaven. You don't belong to this world. You belong to another kingdom. I heard a story about years ago when when much of Africa was a British crown colony. There was a British officer, and he was assigned to keep a post in a very remote, very primitive region in Africa. And there were several dangerous tribes in that area. And he was all on his own. He had to man this post. And he had a friend that knew he was out there by himself that missed him. He traveled very, very far to see him. And he got there, went into the man's tent, and he was shocked at what he saw. It was like he walked into a house in London. There was a a large dinner table. And there were place settings around that table with large chairs. And and, and his friend was standing right there. There was a a, a setting for tea on the table. And his friend was attired in informal clothing. He thought his friend had gone crazy. They said, well, are, are, are you all right? Have you lost your mind? He said, no, I have to do this. Once a week, I set this table and I get dressed up to remind me that my kingdom is elsewhere. I am not from here. I am from another kingdom, you know? And that's who we are. We are subjects of another kingdom. We are not to be fully assimilated into the ways of this earth, the ways of this world, you know? We've, we've got to remind ourselves of who we are. Daniel lived in Babylon. He worked in Babylon. He served King Nebuchadnezzar, served him well, but he never forgot. He was a servant of Yahweh. Later, Persia came in, conquered Babylon. Daniel served under that kingdom, served King Darius well, never forgot he was a servant of Yahweh. Joseph lived and worked in Egypt, served the Pharaoh well, never forgot he was a servant of Yahweh. Even when he became prime minister of Egypt, he said, when I die, don't you bury me in a pyramid. You take me back to the land of my fathers. You bury me in the land of promise because I am of another king. And so we got to remember from whence we came by faith. And so as we go back to this parable, we see this man, he sows seed in his field. And then in verse 25, it says, but while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Now some of you have a version. It doesn't say weeds. It says what? Tares. What is a tear? Well, a tear is a weed. But it's no ordinary weed. This this thing looks exactly like wheat. 
Some of you, if you've got a garden or a yard or whatever and you like to be out there and you want to keep it nice, you walk that thing and you spot weeds and you know what they look like and you pull those when you see them, right? Uh, you wouldn't spot these, not right away. A tear looks exactly like the wheat. It's deceptive and it's dangerous because if you eat it, it can make you sick. It might even kill you. And so this guy's enemy goes out in his field at night and he sows something other than wheat. And he takes the heads of grain, they're called darnels, and he crushes them and he sprinkles them all over that field and then it comes up, the grain comes up. And so in the morning you look and there's grain and it looks like you're doing good, but you've got tares. you got tares mixed in with the wheat. You know what that means? That means now you've got to hire guys to go out there and separate them. You've got to hire guys to spot those tares and remove them before you harvest that grain. Do you have to, har- when, when it's harvest time, you've got to harvest grain quick? You do. You don't let it get rained on. You've got to get it out of there. But you can't just bundle it up and eat it because it could kill you if it's got tares. And so you, you now have this inconvenience and it's expensive. It's costly and it takes time. And so you've got to flush out the junk and that's because of this enemy. And Christ is saying that alongside the activity of God, as he's raising up his people, somebody else comes along and he's raising up his people. And in verse 38, he explains, he says, the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the the enemy who sowed them is the devil, the devil, Satan. So the good seed Sons of the kingdom, daughters of the kingdom, the tares, the weeds, are the sons of the evil one. What does this mean? Number three, in your notes, it means that there are false professors of faith in this kingdom. In this present iteration of the kingdom, you've got true possessors of grace, and you've got false professors of faith. Okay? Right there next to the elect of God, near indistinguishable from them, are offspring of the devil. you got children of God, you got children of the devil, and that is what all of us are before we come to Christ. And, and we can look virtually the same. Okay, there are probably some that are here today. They're sitting in your row. Now, don't elbow your neighbor and say, I got you, I'm on to you. Don't say that, because you don't know. We look on the outside, God looks on the heart, but suffice to say, we're not simply talking about those who are not born again. We're talking about people of ill intent who are coming in, and they've got an agenda. And they are here to sow dissension, and they are here to sow doctrine that is not sound. And, and we have to guard against it in the church. But they find their way in, and they are sitting in the same row, reading the same Bible, listening to the same message, looking at the same cross, singing the same songs. Are they Christians? Nope. Can you tell right away that they're Christians or not Christians? No, you can't. Not at first. You remember what verse 25 says? When does this happen that these tares are sown? It says that it happens while men were sleeping. Sleeping. That's how these weeds infiltrate. People sneak into that field under cover of dark. It's done in subterfuge, okay? They creep in. So we've got to stay alert in the church because when you're sleepy, you're not fully aware. Is that true? Okay, that's right. I mean, uh, you, you don't make important distinctions when you're half awake. You just don't. I'm a little sleepy today. We've been having some demo day at my house lately. We're getting ready to do some remodel and stuff like that, and so we've been tearing things up at my house. Have some good friends from this body here that were out the last few days working hard, which I'm really grateful for. Some of them are pretty tired today. I bet, I, in fact, I haven't seen all of them today. Uh, 
but uh, we've been working hard. And in the prep for that demo, what Deanna and I did is we cleared out all of our furniture. We took it all out of our living room. And so there's nothing going into this uh, left in our living room. Now, normally in our living room, we've got a little pen for uh, one of our dogs. I got two dogs. I got a Bernadoodle and I got a Golden Doodle. Okay, my, my Bernadoodle is older. She's over a year old. Her name's Penny. She's, she's uh, a little shy. Uh, the Golden Doodle, his name is Lucky. He is not shy. He is about five months old. He will be all over you in a heartbeat. He will lick you into oblivion, okay? And every morning, way earlier than I care to get up, I take Lucky out and he does his business and then I bring him back inside. And so I take him out of our bedroom and I take him outside and he does his stuff and then I bring him in and I put him in his pen in the living room. Well, now that's not in there. The living room is empty. His pen is in the basement. So Deanna calls to me in her zombie-like state from the bedroom and she says, honey, just, just put them in the living room. They'll be okay. There's toys in the living room. Just put the dogs together and close the doors and, and we'll just keep them in there until, you know, until we get up because I'm going back to bed. And I'm like, okay, I go in there. The room is dark. I'm half asleep. I got the dogs. I put them in the living room. I see a toy. I throw a toy on the floor. Penny goes after it. She's the taller dog. Lucky can't keep up. And so I, want a I need a toy for Lucky. And I say, hey, buddy, it's okay. I got, it. I got something for you. And I see an object over here. And so in my sleepy state, I walk over and I pick up that toy or what I thought was a toy. But it was not a toy. It was poop. I picked up poop. <laughs> and I was so tired, I didn't even know that I picked up poop. And then I realized it, and I was like, ah! I'm still upset about this. <sighs> we don't always have our faculties. We've got to be alert. And here's what happens when the church is asleep. In Jude 4, it says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. There are tares in the church today. And I'm not saying that Christ in this parable is explicitly uh, uh, addressing the church. This is not all about the church. It's about the kingdom that is in the earth right now, this present imperfect iteration of the kingdom. The church is one facet of that kingdom. And sometimes we have some posers in the church. We've got some deceivers in the church. Paul says in Galatians 2, he says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. There are people that slip into church and they're in Christian circles for the wrong reasons. They're not seeking God. They've got an agenda. And they're, they're, they're very sly about it. They'll come right out and tell you, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't submit to Christ. They don't say that. They don't say, I don't believe in the Bible. They, they don't say, I don't submit to your standard of morality. They, they look like Believers, they, they look the part. They've got the t-shirt. They know the lingo. But they're not God's people. They're not saints. They're ain'ts. And in verse 26, here's how you tell the difference. It says, so when the plants came up and bore grain, very important phrase, bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. You see, this happens over time. The real deal bears fruit. 
The fakers don't, okay? You can't tell for a while because they look exactly the same. Tares can fake anything. And in the church, they can fake anything. They can fake prayer, all right? At least once. If they know the right words, they can appear spiritual. They can fake worship. They can even fake a baptism. If they gotta, they can fake a testimony. They can even fake a tear or two. They could go through all the motions, but there's no life. How do you know that there's life? There's gotta be fruit. There's gotta be fruit. Somebody in the first service came up to me and told me, they said, hey, you know what else I know about tares? I said, tell me. They said, you know that it's a tear and not wheat because when it gets close to harvest time, there's fruit on the wheat and it makes it heavy, so it bows down. But a tear never bows. A tear stands up proud. Isn't that good? I was like, that'll preach. I'm gonna steal that, okay? And so... These weeds don't bear fruit. And number four in your notes, kingdom people are known by their fruit. They're known by their fruit. They bear fruit. There's a longing for God's word. There's a passion for obedience. There's a desire to share the hope that is in us. Are they sharing with other people? There's a love for God's people. There's a loyalty to all the cardinal ideas of the Christian faith. You want to know a prime example of a tear? Judas, he fit in. He looked the part. You might know who he really was at the very beginning. Disciples didn't know. They didn't know. They said, oh, come on, they had to know. They didn't know. You say, how do you know they didn't know? They let him handle the money. I mean, it's, it's like, okay, we got this money. Who should be in charge of the money? Well, you got, you got Judas, and then there's Matthew. Matthew knows how to handle money. He's a tax collector. Uh, he works for the government. Let's give it to Judas. All right, so they let Judas run the money. And they had no idea. You know, you see all these paintings of the disciples, and you can always pick Judas out. He's always got this cold look, some kind of dark vibe going on. I don't think that's what Judas was like. I think he was very gregarious. I think he had a charismatic personality. I think he was likable. I think the disciples were, 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 were taken aback, right? Because Jesus, at the Last Supper, he said, one of you will betray me. And they're all like, who? Who is it, Lord? You know, John's like, Lord, who is it? And Jesus says, it is the one that after I have dipped the bread, I will give it. And then he dips it, gives it to Judas. They still don't know. (laughs) Jesus says, whatever you're going to do, go and do quickly. Judas takes it, gets up, leaves. And they all think, well, he must have asked him to go buy things for the poor. Clueless. They had no idea. Did Jesus know? From the beginning. He had told his disciples, he goes, one of you is a devil. And he knew that it would be Judas, and Judas would show his colors eventually, and he would betray Christ, and Christ would go, and he would climb on a tree, and he would die for the world, and then Judas would go, and he'd pick out his own tree, and he would die by his own hand. And John 17 calls him a son of destruction. He was never a child of God. He didn't lose his salvation. He he never had it. He was never a child of the kingdom. And Jesus says, this will happen in this coming age. Now look at verse 27. It says, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to a master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? This is the question we always ask about the church. Over the centuries, people have wanted to know this about the church. It doesn't make any sense. They're like, wait a minute. That, that, that sign on that building, that says church, right? Yes, it does. Isn't a church the place where Christians go? 
Yes, it is. Isn't, isn't that cross there, doesn't that signify you're dead to sin, you're alive to Christ? Yes, that's right. Well, don't you guys practice communion in that church? Yes, we do. Is it communion where you partake from the life of Christ and now you are unified with him? That's right. It, don't you practice baptism? Aren't you going to practice baptism in a church? Yes, we do. Doesn't that show the picture of dying to sin and you're raised and you're a new creature? That's right. Okay, then why... Do you have that guy in there that I work with that is sleeping around on his wife? Why do you have business people in there who are dishonest and they cheat everybody, but they proceed to hand out their little card with the fish on it? And their, you know, their business, the Alpha Omega Hair Salon or the Living Water Lawn Care or the Hebrews Coffee Shop. What's that all about? Why do you have hypocrites? In there, and the churches always come under scrutiny. Why are all these people who call themselves Christians? Why are they coming into Jerusalem in the Crusades? Why are they conducting an Inquisition? Why, 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 why? It's because the church has changed over the years. It's become diluted. It's become corrupted. You know, the early church didn't have any problem with purity, with commitment. They didn't. They were pure. They were rock solid. You say, well, what made them like that? Well. I'll tell you, if you're a phony, you're not likely to join an organization where you could be martyred. They were persecuted. That had no appeal for fakes. There's no interest in that for them. The persecution never did what the persecutors intended for it to do. They thought, we're going to eradicate Christianity, and all they did was purify it. Sometimes I think we could use a little persecution. Purify your church, Lord, because toleration did exactly the opposite. When it became advantageous to be a Christian is when we started going downhill. Hmm. And in verse 28, he said to them, an enemy has done this. An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? You know what they mean by saying that? Do you want us to go and, and, and get them all, get all those weeds and, and burn them, destroy them? Is that what we should do with the tares in our midst? Gather all the fakes? Destroy them? You're like, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I feel like doing that. Is, the, is there a, a holy indignation that comes over you sometimes as a Christian? You see people in the world that profess faith in Christ and then they get in front of everybody and, and, and misrepresent Jesus? Does it tick you off sometimes? It's okay to feel like that. Paul felt that way. Paul wrote to the Galatians. He's like, I would that those who are troubling you would castrate themselves. Should we make that our verse for the month around here? You know, we get indignant sometimes, but we, we are not, to be, we're not militant Islam. It's not us and the infidels, and we go out and we put everybody to death that doesn't believe right. Here's what the master says in verse 29. He said, no, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. See, the kingdom is much bigger than the church, and there are going to be people out there that are errant, and our approach to them is not to seek to destroy them or be adversarial toward them. He says, don't touch them, leave them alone. Now, you got to keep your church pure. There are going to be people that creep in here. they got an axe to grind. they got an agenda. It's going to be detrimental. It's going to be devastating. It's going to hurt people spiritually. I can't let that happen. So we have to deal with that. And we have to escort people out that are going to be heinous toward the cause of Christ 
in the body of Christ. That's called church discipline. It's given to us for a reason. We're instructed to practice that. But we don't go out in the world and expect to just devastate all who are the tares in the world. And the reason we don't do that is because the roots of the tares get mixed in with the wheat. And if you pull up the tares, what do you end up doing? You pull up the wheat. And so there's got to be some wisdom exercised here. So Christ says, I don't want to sacrifice my potential people to get at Satan's people. So don't yank them up. Rather, verse 30, let both grow together. Let, bo- let the sons of the kingdom, the daughters of the kingdom, integrate with the world and grow alongside the people of the world. We're intended to be in the world. We're just not intended to be of the world. Amen. And so we mix in with them, we influence as representatives of true grace because the church age serves a purpose. Yes, we get indignant. Yes, we get defensive for the cross. They did in in Peter and Paul's day. In 2 Peter 3, 4, we see people crying out. They they say, where is the promise of his coming? Why, Why isn't the Lord coming to judge? They say, forever since the fathers fell asleep, All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. We've got sin running amok. When is God going to lay down the hammer? That's what they want to know. Why doesn't he... You ever think that? You ever think, man, if I were God, man, I'd smite these people. Here's Peter's reply, verse 15 of chapter 3 in 2 Peter. He says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And so number five in your notes, this, this church age, this is a period for God's mercy to work. While God is being patient, people are being saved. They're being saved. Is it possible that tares could become wheat if they would repent? Would it not be the mercy of God to tarry long enough for them to repent? What if God judged the world 10 years ago? How many of you would have been out of luck? 20 years ago? You think it was worth, you think it deserved judgment 20 years ago? Yeah. How about 30 years ago? You'd have missed out. You'd have missed, God would have smoked the world. You wouldn't have come to Christ. You'd have been up the creek. You know, some people use this as a, as a justification that there is no God. They look at all the suffering in the world and they have some, we all have a sense of justice. We say God can't exist because if God existed, by definition, he would be a merciful God. And if he were a merciful God, then he would end all the suffering in the world. And I want to say, well, have you thought about the fact that to really end suffering, that, that would require God judging the world? And does not the fact that God has not judged the world indicate he is a merciful God? We're concerned with present temporal suffering. God is seeing the big picture. He sees an eternity of suffering. And he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. However, in our text today, he says, let both grow together. But then there's a word that's very important. It's the word until. Until. What does that word until mean? Number six in your notes. It means that this period will eventually give way to God's justice. God's justice. It means there's a terminus on the patience of God. Is God going to be patient forever? No, there's justice coming. One of these days, the sand in the hourglass 
is going to run out. That last grain is going to fall, and justice will fall. God will deal with evil. It's not going to be my justice or your justice. It's his justice. I don't know if you've read the back of this book, the Bible. There's a book there called Revelation. Check it out. There's some serious justice in that book. This God of mercy is going to get very real and very harsh with sin. There are phrases in there like, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. See, he's a merciful God, but he's also a just God. And he is both simultaneously and perfectly. And the master goes on in verse 30. He says, let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. There's going to be a separation He's going to divide the tares from the wheat. When will this be? Jesus explains in verse 39. He says, the harvest, this is the harvest. The harvest is the end of the age. This church age is not going to go on forever. It could end tomorrow. It could end today. And he says, the reapers are going to come in. And the reapers are angels In verse 40 says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. And the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin. Other versions say all stumbling blocks. What's a stumbling block? That's a false teacher. And it's not just somebody that gets a certain interpretation on a passage wrong. I'm capable of getting an interpretation wrong. This is beyond that. This is a teaching that is in such error it is detrimental to a person's soul. Okay? My job as a shepherd is to present truth that will help you grow, that will bring you closer to Jesus, that will help you be more in his likeness. A stumbling block offers straight-up fallacy. There is content that is detrimental to your spiritual health. It endangers your soul. And Jesus says there's coming a day when I'm going to take these guys, and not just them, but he goes on, he says, all lawbreakers, meaning not just these false teachers, but their flocks, And he says in verse 42, I will throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does it mean to gnash your teeth? It means you are are grimacing because you cannot change your situation. You cannot escape. And in verse 43, we see there's not only this place, but there's also heaven. He says the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He's going to divide us. The tares are going to go into everlasting punishment and hellfire, and the righteous will go into the kingdom of their father. To what end? Number seven in your notes, all of it serves the purpose of his glory. It's the full expression Of the messianic kingdom. This is God's word and God's ways vindicated. Vindicated. It would not vindicate God's word and God's ways to only have heaven. Everybody gets to go. Does not vindicate his ways. He has character. He must be true to his character. He is just and merciful. To have everybody be punished in hell would not vindicate his word and his ways. There is a heaven, there is a hell, and that vindicates who he is and what he does. It's in keeping with his character. And Christ closes this out by saying, he who has ears, let him hear.
If you're born again today, if you've got ears, the instruction is to understand this. If you can get this, get it. And I hope you have an understanding of the age in which we live today. All right? And we've got a parting question as we wrap this up. How do you know that you're the real deal? How do you know you're the real deal? Would you bow your head right now? I'm going to invite, I'm going to invite our, our baptizees up today. They're going to take their place. Everybody working as we baptize people today. I'm going to invite them up right now. But if you're here today and you're, you're thinking in your heart, you know what, I, I'm not the real deal. I know all the right words. I can look the part. I go to church every week. But I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ that has transformed me. Can I know that I am the real deal or not? Is there a way to know, Pastor Scott? Yes, it's called assurance. You know how you know? Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That means that if you are truly born again, his spirit lives inside of you and it bears witness. It testifies. What does that look like? It bears fruit. It bears fruit in your life. It manifests. You're not saved. You don't simply know you're saved because you feel saved. It's got nothing to do with your feelings. It has to do with the transformation. Has the seed taken root and is it producing life? Are you a tear or are you wheat? Do you produce grain? Are you looking, and it doesn't mean that you're super Christian overnight. It just means are you looking more and more like Jesus as you grow? I got four kids. I got two boys, two girls. The boys look like me. The girls look like their mama, just like we prayed. If I'd have had hairy girls, that'd have been a bummer. But the older they grow, they look more like us. The longer you're born again, the longer you grow, you are discipled. You begin to look more and more like Jesus Christ. But if you're here today and you say, Pastor Scott, I can't say that I'm the real deal today. But I want that to change. I want to be authentic. I want to give my life totally to Jesus Christ. If that's you today, every head bowed. Every eye closed. I'm going to invite you to make a decision that's going to transform your life. And it's not merely a prayer that you're going to pray. Words don't save you. But you give your heart, you give your life over to Jesus Christ. He saves you. And then he leads you. And you follow him. And you begin to manifest the reality of the grace of that salvation that you have received as a free gift. And it starts with a decision like this. I want you to pray along with me in your heart. Dear Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner. And Lord, I understand that there's nothing I can do to earn salvation. But I know that you died on the cross for me so that a seed called the gospel could be planted in my heart. And I want to receive that right now because it's free. You paid for it already. Would you take root in my heart right now? I want to be yours. Do with me as you will.
I am trusting in you and what you did on the cross. In Jesus' name.